and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Welcome everyone to Hope for Healthcare. This is a podcast in which we interview expert leaders around the country on best practices for healing our national healthcare system and culture of medicine. I want to extend a very warm welcome today to my colleague, Dr. Jody Stern. And I also had the honor of moderating his panel discussion with Dr. Reese at the Burnout Symposium in February. Dr. Stern is Clinical Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery, University of North Carolina School of Medicine, and author of Grief Connects Us, a Neurosurgeon's Lessons on Love, Loss, and Compassion. And here's a copy, and we'll be getting into that today. Um, He was propelled by his younger sister, Victoria's surprise diagnosis of acute leukemia, an unsuccessful bone marrow transplant, and later her death, followed by her husband Pat's death from a ruptured cerebral aneurysm, Orphaning their two children, Dr. Stern has been exploring the impact of her illness had on him, as well as the personal experiences of physicians and patients going through similarly disruptive losses. Dr. Stern advocates for greater compassion and empathy in the way we treat each other and our patients and offers suggestions on how we can improve healthcare delivery to achieve these goals. He is also a TEDx speaker, inventor, and photographer. Uh, well, welcome, Jody. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for being here with us. Katie, thank you so much. And thanks for what you're doing to try to improve what, the care that we deliver. We're all in this together, Jody. And, and I think I believe that together we can change our culture of medicine. I do too. Yep. Well, you know, we always, I always like to start out for our audience to get a a better understanding of how you were able to develop your own um, expanded empathy and compassion for your patients and then your own personal journey of transformation along the way. When I started, I was, you know, aware of patients and their needs, but I didn't really understand what it was like to actually be a patient or to experience healthcare and kind of the terror and helplessness that you feel as a patient. And that was, um, so I kind of described that I had a sort of emotional armor that I was um, present, but, um, you know, had a lot of training in being distant or in keeping myself detached, that those were, you know, preferred modes of being. And I realized as with my sister's illness, uh, that kind of all came crashing down. I saw that really wasn't possible. And also I, I, kind of recognized a paradox that actually by experiencing grief or by going through and connecting with your emotions, that actually is a position of strength rather than a position of weakness. And I think that the 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 walling off or the trying to protect ourselves or keep ourselves distant actually for me is more corrosive and more damaging. And so that was a real kind of uh, game changer for me. And I felt that that was something I needed to get out to other people because a lot of us have learned that we are to keep ourselves distant, keep ourselves detached, not let things affect us, maintain uh, compartmentalization. And while that's important and, uh, you know, is is necessary in how we move between, you know, you look at, say, a neurosurgeon and you say, okay, I've got to go and be present with a patient, have a very kind of wrenching 
conversation with them and then moments later take them to surgery, I have to be able to kind of keep some distance or some or or compartmentalize my emotional self. But I can't do without having that emotional contact. At the same time, I can't be overly connected. I have to have some some barriers. And that's where we get into the whole idea of emotional agility and kind of the mm -hmm. flexibility that you want to be able to be present. You want to be able to uh, connect meaningfully with patients that's ultimately better for them but it's also and it's also better for you but at the same time you have to be able to kind of turn that on and off and flex that and i think we have we have no training in how to do that in medicine and it's an essential uh skill that we need to develop mm -hmm. and so how did your experience going through your sister's cancer how did how did that affect you and help you gain a better understanding of how to maybe change your ways of being a doctor and showing up? How did, how did that impact you? So first off, I was able to see kind of by through her eyes, what it was like to be a patient, that every one of us has um, a history that predates our illness. You know, when you get put in the hospital, you you lose your clothes, you lose your identity, you lose your everything that kind of connects you with your with your prior self. You know, for my sister, she lost her, she had beautiful hair. She lost that. That was all shaved, you know, and so she became a patient. And we tend to um objectify and dehumanize people and no longer see them as the vital people that they are. But the thing is that everybody, that was the same with when Pat was in a coma in the ICU uh with a, a drain in his head is that, you know, we tend not to know the people that we're caring for, especially in a critical crisis situation, but that's sort of who they are and defines them. And it's important for us to kind of keep that connection, to keep that awareness of them as people, their lives, their 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 goals, their struggles, their families, you know, what they want. And, and I think so having that realization that we need to stay connected with the person and their family and their goals is it was a very important realization. And I kind of knew it in the background, but I didn't really know it um, in the way that it became clear to me. I see. And so I'm curious, you know, as a as a neurosurgeon, you know, you you probably are, you know, you've got the technical aspect of what you're doing, you've got the crisis aspect and the urgency to some surgeries. How how do you practice emotional agility now today? And I, I think that's actually really a challenge, but I think ultimately that's where a lot of the reward in, in practice is, is being able to, to connect meaningfully with patients, but then also to take that sense of compassion into the operating room to, you know, even though your patient's under anesthetic, you still respect their wishes and who they are, that that informs you as you're doing things. And there's a lot to master, but I think it's also really important to be able to, to have that technical expertise and those skills, but at the same time to keep that person in, in forefront of your mind. And I think one of the things I, I think is important is a realization that sometimes that this is more than one individual person can do. And I think that sometimes we need to build teams to work together to be able to help each other you know, manage some of these issues. I'll give you an example, which is that in my uh, uh, brain tumor program, we embedded a palliative care nurse in the program. And I saw that when I went with uh, Matt Manning, who's in the book and is a radiation oncologist, that we would talk to patients and we would kind of discuss with them 
what was going on. And I realized that a lot of times I was dumping a lot of information on them, you know, what a surgery would be like, what we would do, how we would have to do it. He was talking, we were talking about radiation. We were talking about all the treatments. So there's an awful lot of, 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 of us talking and not as much listening. And I think that sometimes it was very helpful to get a sense of a patient's desires and a family's desires with, through the palliative care nurse, Mary would come out and say, you know, this is what this person wants and cares about. And, and it really informed our decision-making. So sometimes I think it's a little bit difficult to be able to load yet another responsibility onto a surgeon and say, okay, you got to master all the technical, you got to master, you know, the electrical, all the things that you're doing, which is a lot. And then on top of that, you have to keep on top of the emotional. Um, so I think sometimes it's it's okay to to say, well, let's team up, let's work together, let's build a stronger um, program. You know, and that's one of the things that I've been advocating for is in terms of palliative care and bringing palliative care into uh, neurosurgical practice is having better communication earlier on with patients and families. You know, when when Pat was had a aneurysm rupture and coma. We didn't really get palliative care involved until right at the end. And when I, it felt as if it was more like a funeral planning than really um, helping guide treatment. And so I think that getting that all involved much earlier, getting uh, more communication uh, on a meaningful level early on is important for families and for patients. Mm -hmm. And so is a palliative care nurse on your team, does she work with every patient or just ones that have more of a grave prognosis? Every patient. Every patient. Okay. Yeah. And it, you know, certainly, I mean, if, 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 if they don't need it, if there's not really, you know, if it's very routine and there's not a lot of concerns then we don't do that, but if there's any kind of, you know, concerns or either from the clinical team or from the patient, or we think it would be useful, then we will definitely do that. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about that process of how you've created that team with a palliative nurse and, and maybe a little bit about how you frame uh, the foundation of that? So like if she's giving you feedback daily on each patient or is she part of rounds, like a little bit around that? Well, so, you know, in our in our program, what we've done is we uh, have met um, weekly to kind of review patient situations, but there'll also be consultations along the way. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you an example of in, in our ICU, I've tried to build a program with our with our health system where we have uh, palliative care um, nurse practitioners to basically interface with uh, patients and families on an earlier basis and, and regularly. The problem is, you know, we tried to build that program, but hit uh, budgetary restraints, constraints where they said, well, it's, you know, too expensive and it's unclear how it's going to make money. And so I think we are, we're oftentimes up against um, a lot of competing imperatives, which is, are, is it is it better? How do we take great care of patients and build the team that we would want to be served by at the same time as recognizing that, you know, there is some cost in this and and it does it does require an investment uh, from the health system in making sure that quality care is provided. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's interesting, Jody. we we have data on compassion in increasing, improving compassionate care with patients actually improves out medical outcomes. Right. And communication does as well. So my sense is that, you know, it's it's probably profitable and beneficial for the healthcare system to, to somewhat invest in this. 
It, it absolutely is, you know, and and I I find that to be one of the most confusing things about all of this is trying to move systems and move cultures and say, well, we really need to bring compassion in. And they say, well, what's the what's the return on your investment? Well, it sort of depends how you look at it, right? You know, if for example, um, you know that people will look at narrowly at like length of stay, but I mean the the. If you really invest in compassion and you really provide compassionate care, then patients are going to be happier. Families are going to be happier. Everyone will feel better. You know, nurses, doctors will feel supported. They won't leave. They won't, you know, retire early. Um, and so it really, you know, when we were at the burnout symposium, uh, I, a figure I had heard was, you know, a burned out physician costs a minimum of $1.5 million to replace. So you look and you say, do I put in programs and do I support personnel along the way, or do I wait for, you know, a, a crisis where people quit, leave, um, and then you have to replace them, you know, so I completely agree that compassionate care is the way to is the way to improve things. I've talked to a lot of our administrators, I say, you know, if you don't go for the HCAP, um, you know, survey, instead, you just say, we're going to really lean into compassion and make that the foundation of the care that we provide you'll blow those surveys right out of the water. You know, people, people will, will they'll, you, you'll want to see if we provide the compassionate care that we ourselves want and that we know we need to provide and that we can provide uh, staff and uh, physicians and, um, and personnel will feel supported. They won't leave. Uh, they won't, you know, quietly quit. Um, and, the patients and families will will feel supported as well, mm -hmm. and it's and it's very cost effective. But trying to convince people of that is sometimes a challenge. Yeah, and I think it, yes, it is. And sometimes it helps to evaluate, like to pilot maybe a small program in one area of the healthcare system and see how it goes over a year and get the feedback on that, and then scale if it's absolutely accepted. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so, you know, we've talked a lot about emotional agility and you, and you really go into detail in your book about that. You, you, you mentioned how emotion, developing emotional agility can really help buffer burnout and prevent burnout. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I, I think I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I would say that, you know, um, when you try to wall yourself off from grief and you try to wall yourself off from the emotional impacts of practicing, it doesn't work, okay? So a lot of the notions of, you know, keeping our distance doesn't really work. I think that's ultimately more corrosive than leaning into it. But then if you lean into it, you have to have some skills to be able to, you know, experience grief. You have to have time to go through that. You have to have the support of your coworkers. Um, you know, we tend to do this uh, very in isolation, where you know you 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 have a grief-filled experience and you tend to withdraw or you do that on your own time. You know, I'm I'm teaching um, medical humanities to medical students, and uh, one of them said to me um, a few weeks ago, you know, I I had a patient die, and basically nobody. Uh, talked about it or processed it. You know, we said, well, it was a very difficult experience for this person. And there was no um, recognition of that and no debrief. And mm -hmm. so I think we need to allow ourselves to experience grief. I think we also need to allow ourselves to experience the awe and joy of medicine. You know, I think it's a joyful, privileged thing to be able to do. And so to have, it's kind of as if you take the, um, 
looking instead of looking at the world in black and white, you suddenly look at it in color. You see the highs and the lows. You see the the and you see that the fragility of life is is also its beauty. You know, so I think recognizing these things allows us to live more fully and to appreciate the joys and the sorrows of life. Yeah, and Jody, you bring up a really good point in that I think during the day we're so focused on logistics and medicine has become more just about getting your notes done, getting the documentation completed, the next, you know, staying on time. And we as physicians, I feel like we have to create the space in our day to celebrate the wins with our team, to celebrate the joys and to take time to debrief for um, traumatic events that happen. And, you know, the system does not build necessarily build that into our day, depending on where we work. So I, I wonder how, how have you been able to do that for yourself? How have you been able to build in time for that? I think it's required a pretty significant rethinking of how I do my job. And um, it is um, not easy and not obvious. But I also think, so one of the things I, I personally am doing is I think that there's a real deficit in education and I've been trying to go to medical students and, you know, early trainees to talk about these things. So people become more comfortable with the, with the concept, because I think it's hard later on in practice and in training to say, okay, we're going to suddenly, you know, uh, bring these, um, these skills in. I think these are things that you need to learn and work on for a long time. But that said, you know, I think it's hard in our, in my practice, you know, I kind of grew up in a um, production, productivity, efficiency focus, and to recognize that you can't do that and still, you know, have joy in your practice. So it probably means slowing down. It means um, taking more time. It means being present. Um, and I think that a lot of times it's a willingness to allow yourself to go there. And, you know, we talk about empathy with patients, you know, take 17 seconds to have an empathetic Mm -hmm. relationship with a patient all you really need to do is is a willingness to kind of open your heart a willingness to allow yourself to be present a willingness to to share yourself and to share that other person's suffering and i think that's the most profound and meaningful experience whatever kind of medicine that you practice but you have to allow yourself to go there and and patients really crave that you know patients want that connection they want to know that you care they want to know that you you care about them uh, and and I used to think that it was all about perfection, and you know, uh, uh, neurosurgeons are tend to be fairly per per perfectionistic in terms of you know what right. we do, but but it's not perfection. It's it's really a willingness to support someone on the journey of their illness and to be present and to be there, and that's where the meaningful connections come from. Mm. So, Jodia. And this is working. This is just more of a, an interesting question. I want to know about how how do you prepare yourself? Like, how do you reset in between, you know, surgical procedures and meeting with patients and families? How do you create that space and reset between encounters? Um, well, I should tell you right now, I'm I'm actually not working because I've had an injury in my arm and I had to have surgery. So I've I've discovered. Um, so I'm in the middle of a kind of a a, a big reset for me. Wow. Well, congratulations. I'm sorry you had no surgery, but I'm glad you're doing well. Well, I am doing, I'm doing well, but it's, but it is. Um, so I think that um, in, before I was, before I got in this position, I've been 
um, really leaning into those qualities of of connecting with patients and and with families. And I think that um, it is something that has allowed me to experience the joy of practice and the joy of of being a physician. And I think that sometimes you feel when you try to wall yourself off or when you just kind of create yourself as a productivity uh, production machine, um, you you lose that joy. And I think that's one of the reasons that I think it was important to talk and we talked at the burnout symposium is that is that this is a source of burnout. Um, and but I also think that if you um, lean into these things and they are important to you. One of the things that we also have to have is a partnership with the health systems and with the organizations we work in that support us and that allow us to do these things. So I think that kind of partnership is really crucial because without that partnership, if you experience grief and sadness and connect with patients, and then you say, well, I really don't want to be spending, you know, 50% of my time on the electronic health record, can you support me? And the answer is no. I think that actually makes the burnout worse. So I feel that re restoring our sense of purpose, building our sense of community with our fellow practitioners, recognizing that we're not alone and that we're all going through similar things and that we have each other to support, but then also expecting or demanding of the organizations that we work with that they start to look seriously at making our tasks um, better suited to allowing us to do the things that we're there and that we're inspired to do. For example, electronic record is uh, something that we should get help with. It shouldn't be something that you just say, oh, I'm going to do my charting and nights and weekends and just, you know, and it, so I think when we're when we're faced with unreasonable expectations we have to address those and we have to be able to change those. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example that I experienced from in surgery, which is, you know, it's an amazing thing. When I injured my elbow, I discovered that, um, you know, I thought it was my own problem and this was a unique thing. And I discovered that actually surgeons have a very high rate of musculoskeletal injuries related to, you know, repetitive work, repetitive use. So we're not trained on that. I was surprised by that. And then um, you look and you say, well, actually, there's a lot that can be done in terms of ergonomics in and for safety and for, you know, if you wear in surgery, I wear a heavy lead apron, which puts me in a flexed position. I wear loops to magnify my, you know, vision and also a headlamp. And I'll do that for like 10 hours a day. And after 30 years, my elbow said, I don't know, I can do this anymore. And so I feel that for me, it's a kind of a microcosm of what, of what can be done, which is let's look at not just caring for the patients. Let's look at also caring for the providers. Let's recognize that, you know, the compassion and the self-compassion piece are not, are not just like, we always look at the self-compassion as just sort of an add-on like, okay, you need to care for everybody else. Mm -hmm. And then the, when you have some spare time, you can do yoga and all the things to sustain yourself. <laughs> And the recognition that self-compassion and compassion are, are obverse sides of the same coin. They are the same thing. We need to be compassionate to ourselves. We need to be compassionate to each other. And then we can also be compassionate to patients. But if you look and you say in the operating room, well, what would that look differently? Well, let's say, let's look at safety. Let's look at comfort. Let's look at um, ergonomics. Let's look at trying to make things better and 
There are things like taking mini breaks and doing stretches during surgery. There's a lot of things you can do to to kind of uh, for prevention. And I feel that what we're doing in healthcare is we're pushing everybody along as fast as we can, expecting as much out of them as we can, discarding people when they don't, you know, when they're no longer um, productive. You know, it's when in the symposium, when um, Dr. Maslach said, you know, there's we're the canaries in the coal mine. And the thing is, what we're tending to do is saying, well, we need to make a more resilient canary. And I'm saying, well, we probably need to fix the mine so it's more a more joyful place to work where we are supported. So that in that example, you look and you say, well, we can do things to support and protect each other and to make it safer to do our jobs. And that and that's, again, a sort of an example of an investment. You know, you look and say, well, what does that mean? Well, it may mean different equipment or it may mean, you know, looking at different ways of doing things, a willingness to look at how to do things differently. It might cost something up front, but in the end, if you stay practicing and you are able to, you know, do your job um, well for longer in the in the end, that's an investment worth making. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love those suggestions that you give as well. They're great examples of how to uh, create more room for self-compassion, especially in the operating room. And you're right, Jody. I feel like, especially as a psychiatrist and all the stuff that I've been through in my own personal life, you know, my ability to give compassion to patients and my team is at the level of my ability for self-compassion. And so if I'm having a rough day and being extra critical of myself, I notice that it's much harder for me to be there for my patients and my in my team. So being able to take a step back and check in on that can really reset my day for myself mm-hmm. and everyone. And, and people know too, you know, <laughs> our team knows when we show up and our patients know when, you know, we're kind of distracted or not being fully present. And so I think I really like, you know, your examples on really being more mindful throughout the day and in educating your team as well on self-compassion so we can help each other throughout the day. Yeah, I I think that um, the whole notion of add-on responsibilities to individuals is probably not the way to go and building team structures that are sustaining and supporting is going to be much more powerful. Um, you know, with the with the model of bringing palliative care to the neuro ICU, there's some of the physicians don't really talk with patients and families well or want to. And so this concept is that we're going to support those and yet at the same time achieve a better level of care and communication. And, you know, after after I wrote my book, I went and I did training in palliative care at Harvard in the something called Palliative Care Education and Practice Program. And it was fascinating, but the majority of what it, of, of the education was in better communication, in being able to speak with patients, speak with families, um, listen. And I found it fascinating, but I also think it's in a, in a job where we are basically interviewing people and communicating we really aren't taught how to communicate effectively. We aren't taught, and and I we did this um, in the in the small groups in that course. We did role play, playing where we'd be the patient or we'd be the family member, we'd be the provider, and it was amazing how much I learned about how I need to do a better job communicating. And then when you look at, you know, I've had some articles in the New York Times kind of looking at the um, decision making in in you know fraught and difficult positions, say, for example, subdural hematoma and whether to remove it. And there's been a bunch of research on this, but, you know, we make huge decisions with very little communication that have big consequences. And we need to have a better 
um, better training, I guess this comes with the emotional agility, but I would also say better training in how to communicate effectively uh, to patients, to families, and to each other. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you, I'm really glad that you shared that you even did additional training in palliative care because I think as physicians, one of the feedback we've been getting with the whole resiliency languaging is that, you know, we're the most resilient population out there, right? I mean, with everything we've been through. Um, however, I, I have learned over the years, even as a psychiatrist, that there is a way to fine tune how I communicate and how I self-regulate throughout the day. And it's a practice, it's a daily practice. Mm -hmm. And I, so I kind of want to encourage everyone listening to this podcast today to just be open-minded to that, you know, because yes, we are the most resilient population in the world. Um, however, I think that we can improve how we communicate and how we self-regulate. I think right. that's true. I yeah. think it's good advice. And it's made me a better doctor and it's made me a happier doctor, honestly. <laughs> Because I'm not letting the resentments build up throughout the day and I'm, you know, I'm addressing things as they come up and, and taking breaks for myself and, but I have to kind of be in charge of my own schedule and make time and space to reset between patients. And that, that really makes a big difference for me. I think, I think for us to be true to our, our sense of purpose, um, you know, I think that um, we oftentimes don't really articulate our sense of purpose. Like what is our real drive? We tend to allow ourselves, you know, sort of apprentice-based training. You kind of, you, you team up with someone who you want to emulate and model yourself after, but really taking the time to say, hey, you know, what is my purpose? What are my goals here? And then to work, you know, diligently towards those. But at the same time, I think it's important for us to work with, you know, organizations which are top down kind of, you know, you that tell you what to do, how to do things, that's really not going to work. You know, I think we need to, if we're the people who are dealing with the patients and are, you know, upfront in those experiences and relationships, that kind of needs to be a driver for how do we, how does an organization work to facilitate meaningful, compassionate interactions with patients and families? And if I'm if I'm an administrator, if I'm in the C-suite, I'm saying, well, not kind of you need to see, you know, X number of patients and keep your productivity and efficiency, but kind of what are the things that I can do to help you do your job better? And if if people start listening and kind of um, supporting each other, and it's more of that sort of team based idea rather than a kind of, um, um, you know, leadership um as I said, top down, I think then we start to change how things work. I think that people feel supported. I think that, you know, if safety and um, ideas or kind of mission, passion for what we're doing drive an organization, and that's kind of a part of the compassion part, then I think we're we're in a, a good place in terms of having a, a, a program that really works um, to support each other and to support support patients. Well, um, Jody, is there any, are there any last messages that you would like to share with our audience today or anything that you want to highlight from our discussion? Um, well, I'm delighted to be able to speak with you. And I think that um, having, uh, I guess I would say teamwork and uh, compassion driving decisions and care are kind of key. Mm -hmm. 
And if anyone listening to this wants training on emotional agility or further education on this, where would they go for that? Or how, could they reach out to you and contact you? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. I mean, I, I would love for people to read my book. I think it's a helpful kind of guide in sort of managing some of these um, these matters. Um, there's a book by Susan David on called Emotional Agility, which is a very good kind of um, primer on how to do this and how to try to work the balance and, and make some of these um, transitions. Um, but I, I, I think that it is a um, very positive step. And I think that, you know, if you know the, um, the healing arts, are you familiar with that program? It's a, it's a program in, um, that's taught in medical schools and I've been kind of, I've been facilitating it. And so uh, Rachel Naomi Remen wrote uh, some books about, you know, grief and allowing and awe. And I was amazed when I found all those because it's a lot of the same stuff that we that I'm talking about that she was talking about many years uh, before. So I think there's a real need for bringing humanity and healing back into medical care and bringing compassion mm -hmm. back in as the as the core value of medical care. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree. And, you know, I really appreciate you sharing your own experiences, Jody, and your own vulnerability today. I think as leaders, it's really important for us to share our vulnerability and to share our processes for evolution and growing uh, because it helps to create this culture. And this is what will help shift our culture of medicine to one of more compassion. I completely agree. And I think all the data is there uh, to say that if you, if you, if you work if you have compassion as the core value of your organization and truly honor that, uh, great things will happen. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree. And it sounds like great things are happening for you at your organization. And I thank you so much for all of the leadership work that you're doing to, to train medical students and residents and, and other phys physicians as well. So well, I appreciate you're, that. Doing, you're doing a great service for us all and kind of spreading the word. And I, I'm very grateful to you for that. Ah, thank you, Jody. Well, um, everyone, we, you know, Jody will have his own, Dr. Stern will have his own webpage on my website. And on that page, I'll be putting links that we talked about today, along with a link to his book. I highly recommend that you read it. And I also will have any other information available for you as well. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to Jody. And again, I just appreciate you so much for being on the podcast today. My great pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, thank you.